Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome. If you've got a Bible, could you grab that please and turn to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, we find that at the end um, of our Old Testament. Uh, We're going to be starting a new sermon series today where we're going to be looking at this book and what the prophet would say to us. We're going to spend the next seven weeks in the book of Micah, which is one of the prophetic books in our Old Testament. Now, if you've ever looked at the Old Testament as a whole, it's um, divided up by genre, like a library. You have the law at the beginning, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, then it's followed by the histories, which is Joshua through Esther, then you have the wisdom literature, uh, Job through the Song of Songs, and then at the end of our Old Testament, we have the prophets, which is Isaiah, through to Malachi. And the prophets can be broken down into two groups. You have the four major prophets, the 12 minor prophets, and there's a little bit of lamentations in the middle there. And the major and the minor is reference to their length rather than their importance. Um, And Micah is one of our minor prophets. Now, as a church, we've never actually looked directly at some of the prophetic literature in our Bibles in an extended sense. We've spent a little bit of time with Daniel, we've spent a little bit of time in Jonah, but we've looked at the narrative parts of those books. But today, we're going to be getting into some of the prophetic literature. It's time as a church for us to look at that. Now, the prophetic literature we find in our Bible is different from the others um, that we find. There's a lot more uh, imagery, poetry, metaphor, simile, repetition and the like. So we're going to be having a little look at that today. And although these were written several thousand years ago, they have much to teach us now. The book of Micah, spoke words spoken by the prophet Micah, was written to God's people when they were in a time of great prosperity, had enjoyed a period of great prosperity um, as a nation, They'd had an impressive spiritual heritage, but they were now in a season of decline. Does that sound anything like the Western world over the last decades? Their great heritage led to spiritual complacency, oppression of the poor, the worship of idols. Again, does that sound familiar like our culture today? And into this, the prophet speaks And the prophets were there to call the people of God back to the worship of God. To remind them of the covenant God had made with them to be their people. Sorry, to be their God and them to be his people. And that they were to worship him. And the prophet speaks in them to remind them that. To point out their flaws, their errors, their sins, where they've gone wrong. And call them to repentance and the following of the one God of Israel. Micah himself has been described as the conscience of Israel. He comes with a message to draw people back to the covenant that they had to forsake their sin and live times, live a life sorry, of integrity. So if you found the prophet Micah, let's have a little bit of context of what we're looking at. I'm going to give you a very brief history of God's people and then slot in Micah to it so we kind of understand what we're reading and where it is. So... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made mankind, put it in the garden. Mankind promptly fell. Genesis chapter 3, all goes wrong. God then calls a man named Abraham 
Genesis chapter 12 and says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be mine, I'm going to bless you. Like stars and skies, sand on the seashore. Abraham has a son called Isaac, he inherits the promise. He has a son called Jacob, who inherits the promise. He has 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel, the famous one being Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. So then fast forward 400 years, we get Moses and the people of Israel are in impression uh, in Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go, plagues, Red Sea, etc. They come out. God gives them the covenant, gives them the law, the tabernacle, his presence is among them. We looked at that in the book of Leviticus. They then enter the promised land under Joshua. They take the land, they settle in the land. Then God raises judges to lead the people. They continually go away from him. He calls them back to them. The judges comes and saves them from impressions, repent of sin. Then eventually the people say, we want a king. We need a king. Like everyone else around, God relents, raises up King Saul First king of Israel, he does well for a while, then crashes and burns, and then comes the greatest king, David, killer of Goliath, establisher, defeater of the enemies of God's people. He has a son called Solomon, and Israel rises to its greatest, highest point in terms of prosperity and knowledge, and he's super wise, and it's, everything's going well, but then Solomon, Solomon spectacularly fails at the end of his ministry. At that point, here's the bit, the kingdom splits. The kingdom of God people splits in half. And we have in the north, we have Israel with its capital, Samaria. We looked at this when we did uh, the bit on Elijah, well with my soul. And that, that, the kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital, Samaria, is basically bad. They have a series, a succession of kings for many years, and they are all bad. None of them follow the Lord. They all worship um, idols, and eventually that kingdom is destroyed um, by Assyria in 722 BC. The, the, uh, the southern kingdom is called Judah. Jerusalem is its capital, so it still has the temple and everything there. They have a succession of kings which are mostly bad. There's a few good ones in there, but they are mostly bad, and they are ultimately destroyed in 586 by Babylon. And so the kingdom of um, nation of Israel is utterly destroyed and scattered. Then we have the exile. Books like Daniel and Esther, where eventually God brings people back from ex ex exile in Babylon. They settle back in the land, Nehemiah, Ezra, and then we, have, then we fast forward to the New Testament. So that's the brief history of God's people. Micah fits in after the splitting of the kingdoms and just before Israel in the north is destroyed by Assyria. So there's the cultural context of what Micah is speaking into. His ministry straddles that period where he spoke into that and he is looking back at what happened in the past under David when there was the worship of the Lord Solomon the temple got built and then seeing where they are at the moment where they are in spiritual decline and the poor is being oppressed and he calls them back to the worship of God and to repent of their sins. Now the book of Micah as a whole, in terms of its structure, has got seven chapters, but you can break them down into three cycles. And if you look through the book, if you ever open it now and you go to chapter one, verse two, it begins with the word hear. Hear, as in listen, hear. If you go to the beginning of chapter three, you find it again. And if you go to the beginning of chapter six, you find it again. So there are three cycles in the book. Chapters one and two, chapters three, four, five, and chapters six and seven. And in those cycles, the prophet is calling the people back to God from their sin and then pronouncing salvation that will come through him. But first, there has to be repentance. And so that's the structure of the book, and that's what we're going to be diving into today. And the prophet is calling time. 
He's saying it's time to come back. It's time to worship God. It's time to forsake sin and repent of sin. So, big idea today as we dive into this. It's time to mourn at our sin and to repent from it and to look to Jesus for forgiveness. It's time to mourn at our sin, to repent from it, and to look to Jesus for our forgiveness. So, chapter one, hopefully you found it in your Bible. We're going to work it through. I'm not going to get you to read it all out as we've done before, because if you've read it ahead of time, there's a lot of weird names in it, which could just be painful if we're all trying to read it together. So I will read it as we go. And what we're going to see in this chapter is the Lord is proclaiming judgment against Israel and Judah, and Micah is mourning at the prospect of what is to come. So chapter 1, verse 1, the title of the book. When we looked at the book of Mark, which we've just finished, went all the way through Mark's gospel, we saw the very first verse of Mark's gospel acted as like a title for what was to come. It's the same here when we read Micah. It says... Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. What we have here is what to, in, and for. What is this about? Well, it's about the word of the Lord. That's the what. The word of the Lord and what the prophet saw. Micah is a prophet someone called by God to proclaim his word to his people. And the word he is proclaiming is not his own opinion or thoughts he has on the situation or what he wants to shove on his Insta account for people to see. He is proclaiming God's word and he is proclaiming the word of the Lord. So it is the word of the supreme creator of heaven and earth. God himself is speaking to his people, which means it comes with authority, which means it comes with power, and it will be fulfilled in his lifetime. And as Micah proclaims this, he is declaring with divine authority all that God has for him. And we don't know exactly how it happened, but there is a clue there at the end of the verse where it says what he saw concerning Jerusalem and Samaria And so it's likely the prophet had a vision. We see that throughout the prophetic literature that the prophets often see visions of God and doing something which they then go and then proclaim to the people. So it's likely Micah saw that. Then that's the what. What about the two? The word of the Lord came to Micah. We know very little about Micah. Just a prophet. It says where he's from, of Morsheth. What do we know about Morsheth? Very little. But we do know it was a small village about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Basically, it was out in the sticks. So Micah is a country bumpkin, to use that phrase. I grew up in a very small village out in the sticks, so I know what that's like. So he is this guy. He's out there, but God has given him a message to come to proclaim it to the seats of power in the nation. Jerusalem, the capital, Samaria, the capital of Israel. He's been called out of obscurity into the public domain to speak the word of the Lord. And it says in, so we've got what for to in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. They're kings of Judah. That gives us our time frame of his ministry. If you want to look up Jotham, 2 Kings 15, Ahaz, 2 Kings 16, and Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18. They are the three successive kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. 
Jotham good, Ahaz bad, Hezekiah good. Brief summaries of them. So you've got two, two good kings, one bad kings, and the ones either side, many more bad kings, which means it puts Micah's ministry from around 750 BC to 686 BC, the commentators kind of somewhere in there. And his ministry overlaps with Isaiah and Hosea. So if you want to read around what they're saying to Israel at the same time, go and read Isaiah and Hosea. And it's then four. Who's it for? Well, it concerns Samaria and Jerusalem, which were the two capital cities. So this is a word for all of God's people. The capitals are just representatives of the nation because so the capital goes, so the nation goes. If it's corrupt in the center, in the capital, the nation will be corrupt and vice versa. And so he is speaking to them. He is speaking to seats of power and influence. And so now that's the beginning, that's the framing then he jumps in, beginning of the first cycle, which begins with here, and it's two parts. It's judgment and invasion. It's going to be a happy one, isn't it? It's going to be a happy one. So the first thing, part one, uh, judgment, verses two to seven. In this section, the Lord pronounces judgment on his people for their sin. So it begins with the Lord coming down, verses two to five. It says, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, that and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. If you've got your Bible, underline that word here. That's the key. God is speaking, and the people of God need to listen. And the sense of the word is they listen in a way that they therefore respond. Have you ever spoken to a child and asked them to do something, told them to do something, and then you get cross, and they say, I was listening. Yeah, but you didn't do it. And you get that frustration. This is the same idea. It's not just, oh yeah, we heard you. No, it's actually you heard it and you now need to respond to what he said. And so it says, hear you peoples, all of you pay attention. So this is for everyone. There's no one going to say, well, he's not talking to me. God's speaking, but it can't mean me. It can't mean me. I'm over here. You know, I don't believe in God or I'm doing something else over here. No, no, he's talking to everyone. Because he says, oh earth and all that's in it, just to underline that. Let the Lord God be a witness to you. This is the image of a courtroom where the Lord God is coming and he's going to the witness box and he's going to proclaim what he has seen. And this is the all-seeing, all-knowing one. And he has come and it says he's going to witness against you. This is a witness for the prosecution against the peoples of the earth. And the Lord is speaking from his holy temple, which is just an image of God's throne and in heaven, and he is high and lifted up, glorious and majestic. Think Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah said, I see the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and the train in his road filled the temple. Majestic, powerful, all the way up, and he is coming to speak against his people. Verse 3, it says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So we get this poetic imagery. What's it like when the Lord comes down? Mountains melt. That's what it's like. Valleys split open. Have you ever been to the places, mountainous regions? They are awe-inspiring, sometimes terrifying at how big they are and how small you are. God is above them, and when he comes down, they melt at his presence like a candle wax. 
That's what it's like when the, ward comes down, the Lord comes down. He comes down and he touches. It talks about the high places because that's the first place he touches as he comes to the earth, the highest points, which would be the top of the mountains. He comes down and he breaks them. The God is transcendent. He is above, but he's also imminent right there touching earth. The creator is stepping into his creation. Why is he doing this? It says, verse 5, all this is for God's coming. Oh, wow. Why? To bless you, to cuddle you, to tell him you love you? No. This is for transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Transgression twice, sin once. The Lord God isn't coming to deliver his people as he has done many, many times in the past. He is coming to deliver a verdict. And the verdict says you are guilty. You have transgressed, which means rebellion. You have rebelled against my rule. Sins mean you've missed the mark, his standard of holiness and righteousness. And if you follow the stories of the kingdom, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, in the history books of the Bibles, you will find a litany of sin on behalf of the kingdom where they would go after false gods or worship idols. And it was just a continual downward spiral of the kingdoms um, which led to the split and God is now speaking to them. And his accusation is against the northern kingdom, Samaria, but also against the southern kingdom as well, Judah, the high place referencing places of false worship that were high up on hills and mountains where people go and sacrifice to false gods. And so both the capital cities are named and they are both part of the indictment. So the Lord is coming, verses 6 and 7, and he is coming to bring destruction. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for the planting of vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. He is pronouncing judgment against the northern kingdom, against its capital, Samaria. And we know this is fulfilled from history. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army came and leveled Israel, leveled Samaria. And the, the language is one of ruin and destruction and devastation to the point where even the foundations have been uncovered. I've never seen the foundations of a building because every building I use, you can't see the foundations because there's a building on top of it. <laughs> but if it's been uncovered, the devastation is total. What was above it has been utterly destroyed because you can now see the foundations of the building. And it says it's actually you can place vineyards there. It's been so leveled, they're just dirt, so you can plant there. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen to Samaria, to Israel. It says, all her carved image shall be beaten into pieces. Her wages shall be burned with fire and her idols laid waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to a fee of a prostitute they will return. The language there of destruction, beaten, fire, waste, all these false idols that they've set up, all these carved images, all these places of false worship would utterly be torn down and destroyed. Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, has violated the first two commandments. You shall have no other God for me and you shall not make an image and worship it. And God is saying there is judgment for that. You've been warned, you've been warned. It's time. Judgment is coming to you. And then they've got this reference at the end which is a little curious about prostitutes. What's that a reference to? Well, false worship, but often uh, uh, the pagans' worship would often revolve, um, revolve around fertility rights, which would mean you'd pay your money and you'd have sex with a prostitute. 
And so that would be the fee that would be given to them, and that would be part of the, the pagan worship of, of false gods like Baal that was prevalent in the northern kingdom, brought in by Jezebel. We've seen that in the Elijah story. And what he's, he's saying is you've paid all that money there thinking they're going to help you. It's going to be leveled, and that money is going to be taken by the invading army and the Assyrians going back to their nation, and they're going to use that same money to pay their prostitutes and carry on their false worship there. You think you've got trust in that? No, utterly destroyed. And the idea of the prostitute, the image of the prostitute, is one of spiritual unfaithfulness and is used often in Israel's history to describe when they forsake God as their one true love and they go off as someone else, that's what they're doing. And God is saying, you are going to face judgment for it. And we know that Israel was utterly destroyed. Next section. Happy with this? You're getting this? prophets didn't have an easy job part three um the invasion verses eight to 16 now this section is written in the form of a lament which is to express sorrow and grief and we in the west particularly in this nation suck at this because we are (laughs) stiff upper lip that's a very british thing if you are british here and so the idea of expressing emotions like that, but however, in the ancient Near East, where they're from, they were really good at it. And so they would be able to express grief. And you even see it in the stories of Jesus. They would have the profession, professional mourners would turn up. We've seen it in some of the stories you read. They were the mourners who would turn up, but people would pay, who would come and wail and express grief at the loss, um, a tragedy in a family, loss of a loved one. And so what we've got here is a written lament that begins and ends with the images of mourning. And the prophet is lamenting what is going to come. Because Micah's ministry began before the destruction of Israel, but it carried on through it. So he literally witnessed what he had prophesied about. And he prophesied, and he's wailing at the destruction of Samaria, but there's also a kicker in it that we'll see. And that is that this same thing is coming to Judah as well. That's where he's from. So the northern kingdom, yeah, they have the false temple in Samaria. Of course, they're going to get destroyed. But then actually, it's not just them because the sin has spread. This cancer has spread. So it begins with mourning, verses 8 and 9. It says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. So the four refers it back to what's going to happen to Samaria in the previous verses, and he is broken at the destruction and devastation that will come to God's people. And he expresses that in words and actions. He says he laments, which is to express grief. He will howl, uh, sorry, a wail, which is a howl, a screeching, a moaning. He will walk around stripped and naked. That's basically a reference to taking off the outer and undergarment. So effectively, you were just left in your tidy whities in the loincloth and he would go around like that howling and lamenting at what's come and he uses animal images the jackal and the ostrich who obviously had a pitiful noise that they made they made something like that that's my best ostrich impression you are welcome It's a pitiful, sorry sight. And he's saying in response to this, in response to sin and God's judgment on sin, he is just undone. And we carry that on. It says, verse 9, for her wound is incurable. The diagnosis is 
you're going to die. It's just a matter of time. But it also, what does he say afterwards? And it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So we've got the utter devastation of the northern kingdom of Israel being prophesied. And he's saying it's not just going to be them. There's no place for self-righteousness. Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, well, they've got the line of David in their kings. They've got the temple. That's the house of true worship. And he's saying, actually, no, it's coming here too because you have forsaken the Lord and you will face the destruction of your sin as well. And he describes it reaching the gate of my people. Now, this is a reference to the Assyrian army which had destroyed the northern kingdom but then later invaded Judah and it it basically cut a trail of destruction through the, the nation and came right to the city gates, literally. This is about 701 BC. So it's a bit before the entire destruction of the nation, but Assyria flexed its muscles and showed its power to the nation. And the prophet is saying, it's coming to you. This is a forewarning of what will come because we know Judah was utterly destroyed by Babylon later in 586 BC. And he's saying it's coming to the gate. And the gate, it was a literal thing, but the gate was the place where they they did the the commercial business and the legal and the administrative business. So it was like, it was a place where stuff happened. And he's saying it's coming right to your door, the enemy, because of your sin. And then we got what we've got in uh, verses 10 to 15 is a list of places that were destroyed by the invading Syrian army. They just listed one after the other. And what the prophet does here, he uses a play on words for all you Hebrew scholars out there. So they tell me when I read the commentaries. It begins, it says, tell it not in Gath. Now this is a reference back to 2 Samuel 1.20 where the house of Saul fell and Saul was killed and his son Jonathan was killed and David comes and he weeps at the death of God's anointed king, which was Saul at the time, and his son Jonathan, who he loved. And they were both killed in battle. And he weeps and he laments and he says, tell it not in Gath, because Gath was one of the towns of the Philistines who were God's enemy. He said, they are going to laugh and gloat over this at the death of our king. And he's saying, just, it can't even, I don't want it even to be told there. I don't want them to have that opportunity to mock God's people. And the prophet is taking him back to them saying, Destruction's coming here, and the line of David is the one that's going to face destruction because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he goes to a list of towns that are going to be destroyed by the Assyrian army and saying, this is what happened. He says, tell it not in Gath. There's a play on words there because apparently the Hebrew word for tell sounds like Gath. And if we go through them all, they're like that. Bethlehaphra sounds like dust, and it says that you're going to roll in the dust so dust town is just going to be, end up being a pile of dust, is what it says. Then it goes on to, uh, sh- I've got to pronounce it now, Shalpir. It means pleasant, but it says actually what's going to happen to you is going to be unpleasant. There's going to be nakedness and shame. Zanon sounds the Hebrew word to come out and tell, but it says no one's going to come out and help you. No one's going to come and help you. There'll be no escape for you. Bethizel means protection. And it says that will, even that will be taken away from you. There'll be no one to protect you. There'll be nowhere to stand. The inhabitants of Maroth, it sounds that the word sounds like good or sweet, but it says actually it's all going to become a disaster. What you think is good and sweet and pleasant is going to end in disaster for you. There is no hope for them. The inhabitants of Lachish, that's quite a well-known one in the Old Testament. 
it actually means, the word means, uh, sounds like the word to harness. And they're saying, he's saying you, you can harness your chariots, you can put your trust in weapons of war, but they're not going to save you against Assyria and the word of God that's come to you. You will be destroyed. There'll be nothing that you can hope for. More Chef Garth. It says there, that sounds like gift, but actually the parting gift will be your destruction. You're not going to be saved, just like the northern kingdom. Axib sounds like deceptive, the word. And it says, actually, you'll be a place, you'll be deceived thinking you can be saved from what's going to happen, and actually you will be destroyed. And it will bring a conqueror against Meshar, which is a word that sounds like conqueror and conquered. And so actually a conqueror will come to you and you will be destroyed. And Adullam, Adullam is uh, famous from the life of David uh, where he hid when Saul was pursuing him. And he's saying, Adullam, you think the glory of Israel, the leaders of Israel will come to you and rule from you and, and you'll be safe. And actually you're going to end up in a cave hiding because there will just be destruction in your path. And Micah is making it really clear that the cities of Judah are going to fall, just like Samaria had fall, fallen. He's saying Assyria will come. And then the final verse of the chapter is another verse of mourning. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. And this goes back to verse 8. So you've got the lament beginning. The sound of weeping, mourning, wailing, going around stripped and naked. Then you've got the, the trail of destruction that will come through the land. And then finally, another reference to um, mourning, where they cut off all their hair like an eagle, bald eagle. All that is another sound, uh, sign of lamenting and grief that will come on the nation. So we're going to leave it there. We've got the rest of the cycle next time. We come back, the rest of the first cycle coming back. And so what we've got here is the prophet... Is speaking to the nation and he is warning them that disaster will befall them. He is mourning at the rebellion that is in the land and the sin that is so prevalent. And he is saying, this is what's coming. There are consequences to your action. The Lord of heaven and earth is coming down and he hates sin. And despite repeated warnings, he is coming to bring judgment to the nation of Israel and also to Judah. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us here now? Let's see if we can land this. First thing, it's time to mourn. It's time to mourn. Micah was broken by the sin he saw in the land and the devastation that was causing and the consequences that it would lead to. It reflects, interestingly, the heart of Jesus. Because when Jesus came to Jerusalem in the Gospels, what did he do? It says he wept over the city because he knew what was coming to the city. And we saw that in Mark when we studied Mark, what happened to Jerusalem. It was destroyed by the Romans, leveled. And Jesus even warned them, this is coming. This is coming. And his response was weeping at what was happening and what it was coming. And the reality for us to learn is that sin has consequences. Rebellion against the holy God means judgment. And we all intuitively know this, even though it gets uncomfortable, that when wrong is done, we want punishment. We want 
someone to be held accountable. If something happens to us, something is stolen from us, our response, our natural response is, actually, that's not right, and we want someone held accountable for that. But it's the same before God, when he is holy and righteous and just. And he came to earth to die in our place for our sin, to deal with the problem. But actually, the presence of sin is still here, even though the penalty might have been dealt with in Christ. It is all around us. It is even in our own lives. Idol worship is everywhere in this culture that we live in. Now, we don't have physical carved images as such, stone things. No, we just call them sports stars and celebrities and pop stars or politicians. We worship the idols of money and possessions and sex and family and nation and politics and sports and academic achievement and leisure. The list goes on and on. There are idols everywhere. And we know that God is coming to judge because Jesus told us he was. He said, I'm coming back. I'm going to deal with this. And in the meantime, we have to live in the presence. And so it begs questions for us. Do we live in the light of the awareness that Jesus is coming back? He's coming back. When we look at the state of our post-Christian, godless nation, is our response mourning or is our response enjoyment? We get a lot of good things out of living in this nation. A lot of great things we can enjoy that we can numb ourselves to anything else that's going on and it can shape us and push us away from God and any look of the future. Are we even aware that we are so shaped and consumed by culture that we're kind of blind to what's really going on? Are you aware of the sin in your own life and mourn its presence? Because we all have it. Are you Aware of the position of your unsaved friends, family members, co-workers, neighbours, and do you weep for their spiritual state? Because as it stands, without repentance and faith in Christ, they stand under the judgment of God. It's time to cry out to God like Micah and call on him for mercy for this nation. To save the lost, to bring men and women to repentance time to pray for him. That's why we run Alpha courses. I've, st- and I've started doing this thing. I set an alarm on my phone midday every day. It won't be today because we're in church, but every day, weekday. So I pray for the lost and I pray for this nation. God save it. Have mercy on us. Come revive the church. Come save the lost. Come bring us back to you. Last one. It's time to repent. It's time to repent. Our response to this devastating situation is to repent, turn around before a holy God, to cry out in mercy to him that he would forgive us. And that forgiveness is only found in Jesus. If you're not a believer here, it's time. It's time to put your faith and trust in him. Jesus was who he said he was. He was God the Son, come to earth, lived as a man, perfect life, died in our place for our sin, rose bodily from death sent into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to us that we may know him and have relationship with him forever and be forgiven for our sins. And for us here as believers, it's time to repent. It's time to grow up. It's time to acknowledge sin in our lives and deal with it. We acknowledge it to ourselves first and foremost because 1 John 1, 8 says, if we hate, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. 
The devastating place to be, I remember sitting in a counselling session recently with someone and there was a difficult situation they were dealing with with someone and a relational breakdown and I said to them, a Christian, okay, what do you need to deal with? What's your thing? Where have you erred? Where have you gone wrong? What, what do you need to repent of effectively? That's what I was, looked me straight in the eye and said, absolutely nothing. And you kind of feel like, dear God, if you're that blind that you don't think you have anything to put right, where does that leave you before God? Because <laughs> it says we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We need to pray that God would open our eyes to see our own flaws. I've had to deal with this recently. I've confessed it all here to you guys about my own attitudes towards myself, uh, how I've expressed pride in false humility by thinking of myself worse than I should do rather than better than I am. I go the other extreme. And having my eyes open means repentance is something I have to constantly come back to in that. So we need to repent. We need to admit sin to ourselves. We need to admit it to God. Jesus' first words recorded in the Gospel of Mark, which we've just looked at, were... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the next word? Repent and believe in the gospel. So we are to confess our sins to God. We are to repent and turn to him. That's what Jesus' message was. First bit of red in our gospel that we looked at in Mark. We are to come towards God and confess our sins. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our sins. So the recognition from Jesus is, you're going to need to do this a lot. I'll stick it in the, the prayer that you're meant to pray every day with your daily bread. You need to pray for forgiveness as well. Lord, I need bread. Oh, I need forgiveness. Every time you eat, oh, I need forgiveness too. That's what he was saying to us. And we're also to confess our sins to one another, which requires honesty and maturity. And so as we finish, I want us to do some business with God. I want us to do some business with him and actually come before him in a state of repentance and faith. Knowing that he will forgive us because of Christ's death, we are assured of that. We stand on a justified ground, okay? Our legal standing does not change. We are not guilty before God. However, we recognize that daily we are to repent of our sins and continually put our faith and trust in him as we are sanctified and we grow in maturity and holiness. So do you want to stand? Can the band come back? Like the prophet, I recognize that wasn't the happiest thing, I have to say. It does get better. It also gets a bit worse. But that's what, and I'm just, but we need to hear these messages if we're going to grow up. And so what I want us to do now is we're going to sing in a bit and we're going to celebrate that Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who redeems us. We are secure in him. Yes, that is wonderful news. But also we're going to recognize that as the people of God, we are sometimes complacent in terms of sin. We let it run loose in our lives and we don't deal with it. We have pet sins which we hold very close to ourselves and say, hey, I don't want anyone to touch that. I'm not going to deal with that. And you know what they are because the Holy Spirit's convicting them of, you, of them now. And I'm just going to ask you for the opportunity to come before God. Allow His Spirit to minister to you. Maybe to see things afresh. Maybe there's that sense of mourning needs to come out. Brokenness for this nation, for your life, for friends you know, family situations. 
and us to cry out to him for mercy. So can we do that together? I know this, this means leveling up in terms of how we come to God, maturing. But let's do that. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you that you are here. We thank you for your word, all of it. We thank you for prophets like Micah who spoke courageously into very difficult situations and brought hard words that people needed to hear. God, I pray, like he said in verse 2, that we would hear your word to us. It wouldn't just wash over us like a little babbling brook, recede and then we just go on, but it would become, it would bury in our hearts that we would hear your word to us, to be men and women who repent of our sins. And if you know there are things in your life, just do the business now with God. Just come to him. Confess it. Name it. This. Repent of it. Turn away. Seek forgiveness. And we remember that in a mix of it all, in a mix of the pain of that and the heart of that that actually Jesus is the one who saves us he's the one who lord over us he's the one we look to when we look at the mess of our lives the lives around us we cry out to him and God we thank you that we have a savior in you that we can call out to you that we can come to you for forgiveness Jesus never turned anyone away he said come to me and we pray Holy Spirit now you'd give us grace to come to you to cry out to you to follow you God's people said.